Listener Production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week on Crime Insiders Detectives, a Victorian police legend and an expert in the elusive field of missing persons. There's two questions any person should ask. What am I looking for and what am I looking at? The first one is quite easy. I'm looking for the truth. What I'm looking at is much more complex. Val Smith is a 40-year veteran of the Victorian police. Throughout his career, he was involved in a particular set of unique missing persons cases. These were high-profile, with extensive media attention, and saw him track down those missing and bring closure to their families and loved ones. The level of detail which Val goes into is extraordinary. You don't often hear it, but this is a true depiction of the harsh reality of detective work. Val's career takes a few turns, so we'll start at a bypass. He'd just moved into a new role, which would prove crucial in his missing persons work later in his career. 1985, around about mid-90s, you're then a sergeant in Victorian police and you're attached to the district support group. Pretty much a plainclothes fast response group, unmarked cars, Heavy workload, mate, lots of early mornings, late finishes, um, pretty full on. You, you described it as almost being like out-and-out war on the streets here of Victoria. Just give the listeners a bit of an insight, mate. What is what is the district support group and, and, and what is their role? What, what sort of crooks are you chasing around the city in, in that in, in environment? Well, the way that worked was um, there was, it was information coming in. So there was sort of analysts, intelligence analysts attached to the police districts and the information that used to come in, a lot of it came in through the various uh, community information coming into the police, and it was worked up by the intelligence analysts uh, to a certain level, and then they would, needed someone to actually respond to it, to actually pick it up and run with it. Yep. So what, what used to happen was usually on a Monday to Friday basis, we'd work on specific cases that needed a bit more work done, and that would usually lead to... Uh, Drugs. Most of it was drugs, drugs, and more drugs. Drugs was just out of control. And then at the weekends on a Fridays and Saturday nights, we'd back up the uniform cars on uh, on the wild brawls and um, that sort of stuff. It was full on. I think the term that used to be used back in the day for this, and I think it's an English term, a bit like a flying squad, um, Val. You're sort of you're flying into situations and pulling out, and then can be deployed sort of at a heartbeat if something blows up, like you say in the weekend and something. Along those lines, your plainclothes blokes. How many on that unit, roughly? How many fellas are you working with? Well, it was obviously a command structure for the whole the whole uh, office. We had an undercover unit, which was pure surveillance, and then we had um, our particular squad had three or four 
response units with a sergeant in charge of each crew, and I was one of the sergeants, and I had probably a crew of about six, so I could run two cars in my group. There's an element of, of folks that you deal with within society that that style of policing is designed to deal with, and it doesn't mean that you're going to be deployed to deal with everybody or every situation, but there are certain individuals and certain situations and certain groups of criminals that that's the only and, and the most effective way to intervene. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I know talking, uh, certainly in dealing with a lot of those people that you're referring to, a lot of them actually, certainly the older ones, they they understood that. And there was a certain uh, amount of, uh, uh, of rapport uh, between them and us, for want of a better term, that they... And they it's sort of wore it like a badge of honor. That's a really interesting insight, Val, which I'm sure folks are in. There, there's this sort of there's the honor amongst thieves as a as a as a well-coined phrase, but there's also that sort of a respect, if you like, with those police that work at that sort of front end of the operation and those that you're dealing with. And and as you say, particularly some of the older um, offenders, crooks, call them what you will, that have been around the block a few times. They don't really need the grief. They don't, you know, they know that it's a bit of yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full. And um, and they'll often, in my experience, be sort of happy to maybe cough up some younger blokes who have crossed the line and done something a little unethical in their view and um, and be quite happy to hand them over if it keeps the heat off them a touch. Oh, absolutely. I, I used to have one particular informer in the days before the, the the formal arrangements that they have now in dealing with informers that uh, was a, a quite a, a well-known uh, villain he and I were were quite close and I'm talking you know in a professional sense and he had a, a certain degree of what he considered ethics as far as criminal behavior was concerned and there's things that he just would not tolerate and he would not hesitate in saying, this is just not on. This is just not on, Val. You know, this guy's got to be taken out, mate. This guy's got to be taken out. How do you, as a, um, as a police officer in that role, how does that come about? How do you establish that relationship, that communication? How, how, does, that, how does that start up? There's obviously some ways I, I won't talk about. Of course. Um, for operational reasons. But uh, one particular one I can talk about was quite interesting. This particular fellow was an old villain, but he had a an absolute dislike for drug traffickers. He hated drug traffickers, but he had an absolute insatiable appetite for the girls. So he was an avid user of prostitutes a lot of them who are drug users. So he was um, constantly taking the, he pick up the prostitutes and uh, during the course of his interactions with prostitutes, I mean, we we're talking decades and decades ago and he's long since um, passed, he would um, take the prostitutes to their various dealers and then subsequently he would tell me who the dealers were. So, and this was went on for ages and ages and ages. So along that process, we would work up the tree from the base dealer up the tree. So his, his motivation to come to you was purely his belief that what he was doing was acceptable, it was okay, but there was a line that had been crossed because some were providing drugs to these, uh, to these women and, um, and he was quite happy at, to, to, uh, to provide you with that information. That's right. I mean, that's a, that's a low-level uh, low level um, informer as, as far as that's concerned, but it starts the process, so that's the reason I've, I've mentioned that one. 
that's a great insight because low level, like you say, but that's that's where that's where you get a lot of that information, a lot of that intelligence that comes off the street can then identify someone who then identifies the next, who then can identify the next. Because as we know, Val, when you start moving within those uh, circles of uh, drug importation, drug distribution, um, they'll all drop anyone else in it if they think it's going to cover their own backside. Yeah, and the interesting thing with that particular fellow was at one stage uh, in the early days, he he tested me out because he offered me a bribe, right? something or other, in order to fix up something in relation to his driver's license or something. He was picked up for drink driving or whatever. And I said to him, um, you know, you know, don't be stupid or whatever, you know, and he, so he said, oh, it doesn't matter, I can get it fixed anyway. And I said, look, I'll tell you what, you know, he offered me whatever it was. And I said, I'll, I'll double it if you tell me who you're going to get to fix it for you. So what he was doing was actually, he was, t- he was testing me out as to whether he could trust me, whether I was straight. That's what it was. That's all it was. It's interesting, again, interesting times, and we're, and we're not saying, Val, that uh, interactions of that nature don't occur now, but these are, these are things that back in, back in the day, back in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, perhaps were, uh, that's how the information was passed backwards and forwards, and, uh, and a lot of that work done on the street by coppers like yourself was the, was the foundation to information passing further up, which enabled, you know, larger level uh, fish to be caught. It's all different now because now it's all formalised. There's uh, the informers, uh, um, they have handlers, they're all registered. It's a whole um, totally, um, it's a formal process. Phil, I'd just like to, if I could, just jump into a um, another case that you've kindly given us a bit of information on. 1993, this was the Where Is Digger Bill, the missing persons case. Um, an elderly ex-Australian war veteran travels um, to a battalion reunion in central Victoria and never returned. Digger Bill, Bill Goad, he went to this uh, uh, army reunion over in Dalesford and he he disappeared. Now, it wasn't uh, until a few days later that he was reported missing. And in that time, things change. So there was a search uh, launched for him and not only was he missing, but his car was missing, a little blue Datsun. And... I became aware of it, and um, it, it, like most missing person cases, unfortunately, certainly back then, there's not much done. It's just a sort of a bit of a wait and see. And so I started sort of, you know, pushing it out through the media and making inquiries and, and really ramped it up, ramped it up, ramped it up. And it was my little sort of operational uh, high-importance hobby that I did apart from all of the other work that I did. It was the only operational thing that I was doing at the time. And and that's how it sort of progressed. And it, it went it went sort of on Australia's Most Wanted. I really pushed it everywhere because it was, where's Digger Bill? It had a headline, where's Digger Bill, you know? And yes. it just went went viral. And, and, and the turning point in the investigation, I think, which led to its eventual conclusion was a, um, pregnant, a pregnant lady's call to nature. She was involved in some activity and she had to go and uh, uh, relieve herself and it was there that a discovery was made. Yeah, the pressure of a, um, an urgent infant on its way. And um, what had happened was that in the bush, uh, just off a, a major road between... Um, uh, on just near the, the Pakapanyal Army base on the way back to um, Col- uh, to um, Seymour, this uh, this young young lady 
her husband and his father had been cutting wood on a bush block. And it was the second visit they'd made to the block in recent times. And the second time that she, while they were there, had um, needed to attend to the call of uh, nature and um, take a pee. And she'd wandered away from the fellas. And the first time, which was a couple of weeks previously, she'd noticed the wheels of a car protruding out from this little tiny waterhole on this backwater of this little uh, creek off Whitehead's Creek. And the, but the second time she went there, she noticed the, the car again. But this time, the registration plate was, was viewable. And lo and behold, bang, there it is. There's Bill's car. Now, you revisited the scene a little time after that where, am I right in saying that the water level now had dropped to the point where there was actually no water there at all and you discovered some interesting items? I waited till the drought. So I went back the following year in 95 mm. and we were in the grips of a pretty severe drought, as is the you know, Aussie weather. And um, and the bottom of the waterhole was that classic sort of clay and it had gone into those deep fissured cracks. It was amazing. There it was. There was the wallet. There was the cane, the other bits and pieces, every of evidence I was looking for was in the bottom, sitting on top of the clay. And the I've got the photographs just sitting there. Which at that moment, of course, it confirms death by misadventure, a tragic accident, uh, perhaps poor old uh, Bill had fallen asleep at the wheel or something such as that. And um, uh, so any thoughts that there were foul play or anything is now... We, we realise we're dealing with a, just a, a tragic misadventure. Is that, is that how you read it at that moment? Well, that's right. And then and it was all the other uh, circumstances in relation to the scene itself, which was just fascinating. Well, both nature and things and, and where he'd gone through the fence uh, had been repaired by a, a local farmer or something such as that and just all these little things that came together. Well, what, what had happened was that because the other thing was that what happened to the who fixed the fence. Mm. But what had happened was there was a big storm the night, the weekend that uh, Bill had gone missing. And the, the property was owned by an absentee farmer. That is somebody that was from, it was actually from Melbourne, so he was 100 mile away. So he'd come up after the big storm to check his property and seen the broken fence. Thinking a branch or something had broken it. The car's now underwater, probably yeah, yeah. 20, 30 metres away from him. Yeah, yeah and he'd, wow. well, he'd seen that, it, oh, some car's gone through here, but it's not here. So he'd fixed the fence and gone home. So by the time the bill's reported missing, it's all, it's all after the fact. So he's, he's fixed the fence. But the interesting thing, the really interesting thing that intrigued me was the barbed wire, the top strand barbed wire, all of the barbs were pushed away from the break, away on the, on the strand. So it was, this, it was a clean strand of, of, of uh, wire with all the barbs pushed, pushed up. either side. Either yes. side, bunched up. When you view that, Doing a sort of a crime scene investigation. What 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 do you, what are you thinking when you look at that? It's all consistent with the the vehicle. You could see the yaw marks in the grass with a proper camera. You could see where the vehicles come off the road, gone through the fence, snapped the wire. But before at that point, as it snapped, before it snapped, just at that millisecond before it snapped, it's pushed all the barbs off the wire. Then it snapped, and then it's concertina the netting. 
gone through the across the paddock, scarred to um, taken the bark off to shrubs, gone through the paddock, lost a mirror, rolled a couple of times, gone into the hole, sunk, gone. Back in the day, a missing persons case, it was sort of almost like uh, maybe an initial report and then sort of sitting back a little, oh, we'll just sort of wait and see what happens, wait and see what unfolds, almost almost not an active investigation per se. Um, because sometimes I think uh, situations where a missing person, it's not treated as a crime per se by police and so maybe they're going to be a little less enthusiastic in their response to it. Val, what are your thoughts on that? It was a bad habit that uh, that... Uh, and it still happens in some circumstances today. It was certainly a bad habit back then that uh, in some cases, in many cases, that there was a habit of wait and see for a period of time. Sometimes it was a couple of days. Sometimes it was even a bit longer, depending on the circumstances that came with the report. In many missing person cases, the person would uh, would be located very quickly within a, a couple of days or, you know, three or four days or maybe a week. I'd totally disagree with that attitude there should be inquiries made right from the right from the as the term is now the get-go just to take us through that from that frontline policing role when when a missing person is reported or family members perhaps walk into a local police station you know push the buzzer at the watch house young copper comes out and they want to report a relative that you know should have been home this morning should have been home last night hasn't been what happens? What does that? What does that trigger? What What happens at that point with regards to those um, those disclosures? There's two questions that any person should ask: What am I looking for, and what am I looking at? The first one is quite easy. What am I looking for? Is I'm looking for the truth. Now, you could say, "Well, I'm actually looking for the person," but that's part of the truth. I'm looking for the truth. What I'm looking at is much more complex. That takes into consideration so many things. Mm. And what we need to do is quickly catch up. They right. need to capture everything. They need to, you almost, you, if, you, if you had a magic wand, you would freeze everything. You need to say, right now, stop. Right. I need to stop everything so I don't lose everything. I don't lose anything. I need to capture everything right from this moment. And then I need to back capture what's mm. already lost mm. where do you start you need to you need to there's obviously, obviously all those standard things of you know who is it where where are all their contacts their friends and stuff it's, mm. if there's uh, they in this day and age their computers their phones their, all that so there's so much there's so much if we're looking at a bush scenario which i really really specialize in people lost in the, in the wilderness if it, people are reporting them lost in the in the wilderness we need to capture that at that time, the people are there. When they ring in, they ring in from the bush. The first response people that we have are the people that are there. The family are there. You need to task them. Right. You need to task them in situ. Are you that you're there? Have you got a mobile phone? Okay. You get the initial details off them. Now I want you to start taking, get your phone and do a 360 scan of everything that's there. Mm. You know, a lot of times the police will say, we'll have a unit attend. Now the unit might take an hour to get there. 
How much evidence is lost? How many potential witnesses have already departed? There's so much. Brent, I could sit here for a day and tell you all the things that need to be done. And I can I can sense your passion of this. And, and I guess the, the buzzer goes at the watch house. Often it's a young constable to walk out and, oh, look, my, my son, my daughter, my father, my wife my, hasn't come home or, you know, they, 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 and what have you. There's that. You, you, they can fall back into, as you said earlier, that, oh, well, we'll just wait and see. You know, it, well, I'll tell you what, if they haven't come home for dinner, maybe come back and give us a shout. So almost like a, a little bit of a duck shoves there where – you're saying because of your experience and because of your passion, that moment in time is 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 probably the most important moment to engage in that situation. And it's that it's that classic question that we ask, isn't it, in the police? Is there a reasonable cause to suspect that a crime or crimes have been committed? Or you know, it's it, it's starting with that same process as you would with a criminal event, isn't it? That's that's one of the problems. It's you're investigating an incident. You're not necessarily investigating a crime. Yes. Put that to one side. If it was a if it was a, a a major collision on a highway, or a major fire, or the Westgate Bridge had collapsed into the into the river like it did many many years ago, or it was a major bushfire, you could put a task force onto it. It may end up with no criminal convictions, but you still investigate it. All I say is this: imagine, just imagine, that it's your child. It's your, your sibling or your loved one, and especially if you're a, a parent or whatever, and imagine that you pack, you pack the lunch for your child and you send them off to school. And while you're, while, as they're heading out the door, you're busy making a phone call to arrange to you know, have a catch-up coffee with your best friend or whatever, and you say, bye, off they go out through the door. That's it. You never see them again. With the work, Phil, that you're now doing, we were talking off air about, um, you know, you're very involved now with the um, footprints in the wilderness. And, and you were saying to me that the work that you do as, a, as one of the lead investigators, it's not so much investigating the missing person per se, it's more looking into the investigation that was run for that case and looking at perhaps shortfalls or gaps in it. And and. I guess, in essence, this harkens back to this discussion we're having at the moment, isn't it? You then going back through, combing back through the embers, if you will, and saying, okay, we missed an hour there, we missed something there, we missed a communication or something there. And oftentimes, those little misses here and there in your experience may be misses that could have ended with a different result or at least giving some closure to families. That's exactly right. And it's interesting you would uh, use the word experience because that's one of the challenges that we, or one of the problems that we find often is experience is the problem. Or, or lack of it? No. Or no. Okay, the, so the this opposite. is interesting. So just explain that to me. We look at biases, one of them. So this is, you could call it maybe perhaps an, ex, an assumption bias. Like an unconscious bias or it, call it what you will. Yes. Yeah. And, mm. and what we're finding is, is we use the term experiential bias. So okay. it's the, oh, I, know what, I know what's happened here. Whether it's un, uh, a subconscious or a, a conscious bias where an investigator will go in and say, I know what's happened here. Uh, I've seen it all before. Well, you know, maybe you have. But there's a, a famous quote from a, uh, many years ago, they asked a, a number of detectives around the world. This, this is going back. Well, decades ago, to explain what they thought 
was made a good detective. And there was a fellow back in the late 1800s, George Walling. He was the New York police commissioner in the 1870s. And he said, I've rather liked the hesitating man, the officer who doubted the correctness of his own theories. Mm. And I think that's perfect. Come up with a hypothesis and then think, well, you know what? Now I've got to try and prove myself wrong. And if you, if you try to prove yourself wrong and you work at it and you can't prove yourself wrong, then you've probably got it right. That takes an ability to put your ego in the sock drawer too, though, doesn't it, uh, Val? I like that one. I'll write, I'll write that down. You can jot that one down, mate. Yeah. yeah, that's a beauty. But it does, though, doesn't it? It's like, yo, look, I've been here a while. I've seen a lot of stuff, but I'm just going to put that aside because no two cases are the same and there's a chance I could be reading this one a touch wrong. What am I looking at? That's mm. exactly what it is. What am I looking at? Put everything aside. What am I looking at? And if I don't know, If I don't know what I'm looking at, then I'll find out. Val, look. These are these are wonderful, wonderful insights, uh, Vel, and, and I and I thank you so much for sharing them with us and and the passion that you have for um, amongst other things these these missing person cases and in line with um, other officers I've spoken to they they do sit quite heavily um, with with uh, with many police these missing persons cases. I had a chap recently saying to me that um, having been involved in a in a case where a little one went missing over forty years ago. Um, the family, the, the, you know, they're beyond the point of of wanting you to solve a crime or find an offender. Their, their, their wishes are simply they just want their little one brought home. They just they just want to find where that little one is and bring them back home. And and there was such emotion in him saying that. And I'm I'm sensing Vel that you know you you carry some of this quite heavily um, these these cases. I'm glad you raised that because we hear the term closure mentioned all the time, and uh, and 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 that's uh, I understand that. Um, there's a term, that, another term that's that's uh, that's used, which is ambiguous loss. A missing person is an incredible amount of grief for those that have suffered a missing person within their family, and what I refer to it is. As far as the finding their loved one, it's it's so high on the on their on their um, their need to relieve some of the grief. It's closure's not not the right word. They need some focal point. Some they need to bring the loved ones home. I hear it. I hear it. I see it all the time. It's it's again again. It's one of those things where you need to. Try. It's difficult. I don't know how you can do it if you haven't suffered it yourself, but to imagine the grief that those families have in not knowing. They just they just have no idea. All they can try to do is avoid thinking the unthinkable, the things they don't want to think, because they don't have the answers. Well, look, mate, I just want to thank you so very much for taking the time to join us here today for a chat. Um, I looked through your service and the areas that you've worked and the length of time that uh, you served in, in VicPol there, and you are, and I mean this in the, in the most complimentary way, you're a classic old school detective in the mould of sort of like the real life version of the Hollywood detective, mate, you know, with a penchant for 
not only crime investigation, but you have a real interest and passion for the science and psychology behind investigations. And um, as we come to a close, I just want to wish you all the very best in, in your, you know, your ongoing involvement with Footprints in the Wilderness, which those listening in can certainly jump online and have a look at. All the very best with the cold cases that you continue to investigate and you continue to look for evidence and clues that can help those families who have all of those unanswered questions that you mentioned. So Val, I want to thank you so much for your past service and your ongoing service to the community both of Victoria and further afield and um, mate you're an absolute champion and thank you for taking the time to have a chat to us. My pleasure Brent and uh, just keep wondering mate. Thanks mate, all the very best. Cheers. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly. <laughs>